0: Well good morning. morning. Welcome to Bridgewater. Uh, We're super glad you decided to join us here this morning. My name is David and I serve here as an intern and this morning I get to open the word with you as we kick off a new series uh, looking at the story of the book of Exodus. And there's something about stories that we all love, isn't there? Whether it's books, movies, TV shows, video games, sporting events, we all get pulled in by A story. We just love stories. We have this natural ability to put ourselves into the story and feel what the characters feel, to take on their perspective, to kind of root for them because we want success for them because really that's what we want for ourselves as we identify ourselves with the characters in a story. I'd be willing to bet that as a kid you like to dress up as your favorite character in whatever story it might be and pretend that you were them. As a kid, I loved spy movies, uh, and I would run around with made-up spy gear and pretend that I was a spy. Anybody uh, see the movie Spy Kids? But you remember those movies? I loved those things when I was a kid, and I thought they were the coolest thing, and so I wanted to be the kids on Spy Kids, and then for a while I went through a stage where I loved uh, Davy Crockett, and so I would run around with my coonskin cap and pretend that I was the king of the wild frontier uh, for a while there, and if, for those of you with kids, you're probably going through that stage right now, right, where your kids are dressing up as whatever their favorite character is, and they're living out that story. But even as adults, we still feel that, that pull that stories have on us, don't we? I mean, that's why Halloween is fun, even as an adult, if you're willing to admit it, anyway, um, because it's the one time a year where it's socially acceptable for you to dress up as your favorite character, right? We all love stories. That's why the entertainment industry is such a big thing. Why it's such a big thing is that we all love stories. And in this series, we're going to see ourselves in somebody else's story, We're going to see how their situation really is going to parallel our own. And so we're going to be diving into the book of Exodus, and and this book records the, the story of the nation of Israel who were God's chosen people, and it records the story of how God rescued them from their slavery in Egypt and ultimately brings them into the promised land. We're going to jump into some stories here that some of us might be familiar with and some of us may not, but I want to be clear here at the beginning that we're going to be doing a kind of a flyover of this book at a significant altitude. We're just going to hit some key moments as we look at how this book really communicates the human story. We want to look at these stories, but we really want to see how this account helps to explain the human experience. You see, the reality is that the story of Exodus is your story. It's my story, because in Exodus, we see the human story. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul, looking back on the very events we're going to read here in this series, says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And skipping down to verse 11, these things happened to them as examples, and they were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. And so our goal for today and really throughout this series is to see our story in their story. It's to learn from their example, both good and bad, so we can repeat their successes and we can avoid their mistakes. And so let's get caught up on the story of the Bible so far. First book of the Bible is called Genesis, and in that book uh, we see that God is the creator. He creates everything and He creates it good. But Adam and Eve decide to sin. And because of that, sin uh, changes everything about the world. And there's actually a separation between God and man now. There's there's a distance between God and man because of sin. And in Genesis, right away, we see God set a plan in motion to restore mankind to himself, to bring us back into right relationship with him. And part of that plan is is choosing a man and saying, I'm going to make you into a great man nation. In the last half or so of the book of Genesis, we see that happen. We see kind of the story of that family that eventually becomes a nation. And so that brings us to the book of Exodus. Let's start reading in chapter 1 verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family: Reuben, Simeon, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. And then we see in verse 6 that this is really just a continuation of the story because he starts with the word now as if to say this is just really the next chapter in the story. So let's read it, keep reading in verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And so we've got the the people of Israel. Now they're a large nation. They're living in Egypt. So they went down as 70 people, and now they've become so large. The verse kind of almost exaggerates how large they are. It uses four or five different words to talk about how big they have come. And so the author is making it very clear that this is a large nation, and then later in Exodus, we see in chapter 12 that there's about 600,000 men on foot. And so when you add in the women and children, that, that comes to maybe two million people that are in this nation. This is a huge nation that just started with 70 people. And so all, so far, all this sounds great. This nation has become prosperous. They went to, to Egypt really to escape a famine. Um, there's a famine in the land, and so they went to Egypt to escape that. And not only did they do that, but they became this huge, prosperous nation. Everything's going well. then the tide turns very quickly in the next verse. Let's keep reading in verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. And so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, And they built Pithon and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. And so the people of Israel have gone from freely living in this prosperous land to all of a sudden finding themselves in captivity. They were subtly taken into captivity. And this is really where our story begins to to, to meet their story. You see, we're talking about actual events that happen to to real people, but these events have come to kind of symbolize some spiritual realities for the people of God. And so, if you're a follower of Jesus in here today, then Egypt really represents your old life of slavery to sin. And so, this is how our story connects to theirs. All of us are also subtly taken into captivity, but instead of being taken captive by a foreign king and being forced into forced labor, instead, we are taken captive... By sin. See, the first big truth we want you to see here in Exodus is that sin subtly takes us into captivity. It wasn't that Israel was trying or even wanted to be enslaved by Egypt, right? A new ruler came to power, and all of a sudden they found themselves in slavery, they found themselves in captivity. And this is very similar to how you and I find ourselves in slavery to sin. God's Word teaches that all of us are actually born this way. We're born into sin. We're born as slaves to sin, just like the last few generation, generations of Israelites there in Egypt. We're just born into this captivity. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 3. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. And skipping down, he says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then Jesus adds this in Romans, or excuse me, in John chapter 8, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And so the Bible makes the point that all of us are sinners and by by being a sinner, we are actually captive to sin. We're slaves to sin. And this is how our stories meets theirs. Their captor was Egypt, and our captor is sin. All of us are born in need of rescue. We're held captive. We're in bondage. Our world might like to think the opposite, that people are basically good and that society is what corrupts them. But the Bible, and I think if we're honest experience, teaches us that we're actually born into sin. We're born held captive by it. You might say, wow, that sounds like some really great news. I'm so glad I came to church today. Well, this bad news actually gets a little bit worse, because not only is sin a subtle taskmaster, but it's also deceptive. Second truth we want you to see in Exodus is that sin quickly turns from provider to oppressor, quickly turns from provider to oppressor. Let's keep reading in verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly, They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields and all their harsh labor. The Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. See, Israel had fled to Egypt because of a famine in their land, and they had found this to be a place of great provision, right? They were starving, and they come to this land, and all of a sudden, there's food for all of them, and all of a sudden, they're able to multiply. This had been a great place of provision, But when this new Pharaoh comes to power, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, they find themselves oppressed. They find themselves under harsh labor. And just like the Israelites running to Egypt for rescue, sin at first promises to be a provider, doesn't it? But it always quickly turns to an oppressor. We run to sin because we feel that it's going to provide something for us. We think it's going to solve a problem. We think it's going to give us happiness or contentment or peace. We think it's going to give something to us. But it always takes from us, doesn't it? But whether we realize it or not, sin is an oppressor. It doesn't lead to joy. It doesn't lead to happiness. It doesn't lead to life. It actually sucks all of those things from our life. Whether it's the big, obvious sins or the little ones that we think we get away with, sin always takes from us. Maybe it's the drugs or the alcohol that promise to provide relief, but it only lasts for a moment, and then we find ourselves addicted Maybe it's the friend at work who provides a listening ear, but it turns into an affair that wrecks our lives. Maybe it's the inappropriate movie or TV show that provides some entertainment for a moment, but it fills our minds with things that lead us to jealousy and resentment and lust and all kinds of other things. Maybe it's the money we begin to make, which provides some freedom for a moment, but it turns into this oppressive lifestyle of expectation and stress as we think we need more and more and more. Sin may promise freedom, but it is always an oppressor. We talked a few weeks ago about those who are short-sighted, those who come to God looking for something that will spoil, something that won't last, but when God is actually offering them so much more, and we talked about how God is the only one who can actually satisfy our hearts, that longing in our soul for something more. God is the only one who can actually meet that and satisfy that. But so often we Run to sin to try to find those things. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus here this morning, even when we've been rescued from sin, sometimes we find ourselves wanting to go back to our old life of slavery. You see, the Israelites, they actually had the same problem. We find later in the story that after they've been rescued and they're in the wilderness and they find themselves hungry for a moment, they think it would actually be better in Egypt. We see this in chapter 16. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Clearly, they thought that Egypt was a provider. And they forgot all about all the oppression they faced there. They forgot about the forced labor. They forgot about the fact that Egypt was murdering their children They forgot about all those things, then they let their present circumstance loom larger than the God who had just rescued them. The reality is that sometimes you and I, we do the same thing. God has rescued us from our slavery to sin, but we can in moments of weakness look back and we forget all about the death and destruction that sin reaped in our lives, and we just remember that one thing that we thought that sin was providing for us, and we want that. And so we want to go back. We forget all about how miserable we were in our sin, and we think that somehow sin is going to provide for us this time, even though it's always proved to be an oppressor. Sin might provide something for us for a moment that feels good for a second, might seem good for a second, but it always takes so much more. Sin will always lead us farther than we wanted to go, and will always take from us more than we wanted to give every single time. You see, we're naturally inclined to see sin as something that I can harness and that I can use to my advantage. The trouble is that you and I really have no power whatsoever to manage sin. We don't have that power. I remember as a kid, my cousins had a four-wheeler that I thought was the coolest thing in the world. We didn't have anything like that at home, and so it was only at their place that I was able to ever ride the thing. And I remember one time I actually got the opportunity to drive it. And I was, I was pretty small, I was a pretty small kid, and so um, one of my older cousins, one of my bigger cousins, was on the back of the thing making sure that I didn't kill myself while I'm driving this four-wheeler, right? And I have this distinct memory of trying to take it up a really steep hill and hitting the gas aggressively at the wrong moment, and since I didn't know what I was doing, and since we were on a steep hill, and since all the weight was in the back, the front tires leave the ground as we start to tip backwards, Now, thankfully, my cousin was smart enough and quick enough to throw his weight forward and get those wheels back on the ground before we tipped the thing and killed ourselves. And I tell you that story because I think it illustrates how we think about sin. You see, I thought I knew what I was doing and that I didn't need any help and that I could manage this vehicle that was far more powerful and far bigger than I was. But if it wasn't for my cousin stepping in and intervening, we could have died that day. And that's how it is with sin. Sometimes we think that we can manage it on our own, that we're big enough, that we're smart enough, that we've got it together enough that we can handle it on our own. But the Bible is very clear that all of us, every single person in here is just like me as a little kid with that four-wheeler who didn't know what he was doing and that if it wasn't for the intervention of somebody else, could have killed himself. Some of you here in this room, you understand that. You understand the power of sin. You've seen it wreck your life. You've seen it wreck others' lives. And so you, you know that you need help. But others of you in here are still trying to drive that four-wheeler all by yourself. You think you're big enough. You think you're strong enough. You think you've grown up enough. But the Bible teaches that none of us ever graduate out of the need of needing help from other people. We always need help with sin. Sin is far more powerful than us. It's dangerous. In fact, it's so dangerous that sin offers life, but it delivers death. It offers life, but it delivers death. Let's go back to our story in Exodus here. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. See, Pharaoh had a plan to stop these Israelites from growing. He was going to exterminate the male population. But notice that he doesn't just say um, terminate uh, pregnancy before it comes to full term. Instead, he says, let them be born, let them have the life, and then we're going to take it away. He's giving the illusion of life, but truly he's only actually offering death. And this is the exact same thing that sin does to us. It promises us life. It says that it's going to give something to us, but it delivers death every single time. This is how Paul put it in Romans, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the wages of sin, what is deserved, what naturally comes about as a result of sin is death every single time. Not immediate physical death, but it reaps death in our lives. It reaps destruction every single time. Sin may offer life, but Jesus Jesus is the only one who can actually give us life. He's the only one who promises life and can actually deliver on that promise. This is what he said in John 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's like what sin does. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. See, Jesus offers us life, and not just any old life of of being able to somehow make it through life. He says he offers life to the full, an abundant life. We've kind of focused for the first part of this sermon on the bad news, but here is the good news. There is life to be found. There is freedom from the slavery to sin to be found. And continuing in our story, we'll see that freedom from sin begins with fearing God. Freedom from sin begins with fearing God. Let's continue reading in verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. And so God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. Pharaoh's plan didn't work very well, did it? And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. You see, these midwives were blessed by God for their refusal to take life the people who were tasked with really giving life or helping life come into being or were charged with taking life but they refused they said no we're going to fear god more than we fear pharaoh we're going to listen to god and notice that they're not commended for their lying Biblical authors don't always stop and uh, c- correct what the character is doing. They don't always stop to point out what the character is doing. Sometimes people like to attack the Bible and say that it, can, it condones certain things that, the, that are wrong, but just because it records it happening doesn't mean that it was okay, right? And so this is one of those times where the Bible doesn't stop to correct that. The point that, that the story is making is that these midwives feared God, and because they feared God, they were ultimately blessed, And fearing God is really Old Testament shorthand for becoming a believer or for being a believer. You'll see that throughout the Old Testament, describing somebody who walked closely with God, who obeyed God, who who did what God said. These midwives ultimately found freedom by fearing God. God would later send plagues and would deliver all of the Hebrew people, including these midwives, from their slavery to Egypt. Egypt. And in the same way, God sent Jesus to deliver us from our slavery. You see, Jesus comes to release us from our enslavement to sin. Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, "'Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness?' But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And then later in that same book in chapter 8, he says this, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. And so Jesus is the one who has come to release us from our slavery to sin. He came to set us free. And this is why the gospel is good news. The best news in the entire world is that God has made a way. He has stepped down into our mess and he has made a way for us to be set free. Jesus paid the price that we deserve to pay. He died the death that we deserved to die so that we could have a restored relationship with God. Jesus has made a way out of our slavery. You see, all of us, we begin at the same place. We're enslaved to sin. The beginning of all of our stories is the same. But you get to determine how your story ends. And so my question for you this morning is simple. How will your story end? What will your response to sin be today? Will you continue to live in it, serving it as a slave? Will you continue to run back to it even though you've been set free from it? Or will you today begin to fear God and find life, find freedom from sin? And so if you're in here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, today you can start to find delivery, you can start to find freedom from that sin by turning to Jesus, by admitting that you can't really do anything to fix your problem just like the Israelites who were held captive by the most powerful military force in the world at that time, you don't really have any ability to release yourself from your sin. You can't do it. You can't work harder. You can't make yourself good enough. You can't get to the point where all of a sudden you'll be free from it. No amount of work is going to make it possible. Jesus has already made it possible. He already set you free. You just have to turn to him. You've got to turn to him and repent. You've got to turn to him for deliverance from your sin. And if that's you this morning, we'd love to talk with you about how you can find freedom, how you can find life in Jesus. Please don't leave here this morning without talking with someone. And if you're here today and you've already been delivered from your sin, the story of Exodus really teaches us not to run back to our old life of slavery. Don't forget about the death and destruction that sin reaped in your life. And don't try to manage your sin thinking that you're good enough or that you're powerful enough to manage it on your own. You see, the reality is that all of us are like me as a little kid with that four-wheeler. We're not big enough. We're not strong enough. We're not smart enough. We need God's help, and we need the people that he has put in our life. And so don't try to handle sin on your own. Don't try to allow just a little bit of it in your life, thinking that it won't grow and spread and just take over your life. Sin will always lead us farther than we wanted to go and take from us more than we wanted to give. So what's that sin in your life that you try to run back to time and time again, to try and find that satisfaction? It always leaves you empty, but you're still somehow convinced. What is that one thing? I'd ask you today to make the day that you decide to kill that sin in your life. And the best way to do that is to talk with someone about it. It's to get some help from some brothers and sisters in Christ who can help you break free from the power of that sin. The best time to deal with sin is right now. Don't wait. It might be something that you're it's kind of ugly, but the reality is that I promise you the grace of God will meet you in that moment when you drag that sin into the light. It is the most beautiful thing to watch the grace of God meet you right where you are. I can remember as a middle schooler, the first time I told someone about a particular sin in my life. I expected them to be shocked, to be disgusted, to yell at me, I expected to get in trouble. And instead, what I found was love. Instead, what I found was acceptance. Instead, what I found was that they moved toward me in love and grace, and they started helping me take steps to remove that sin from my life. And that really was a a turning point in my life where I started to put that sin to death. And it started with getting help. And so I get the fear. I get the concern. But I promise you, I promise you, letting sin continue is so much worse. The consequences of that are so much worse because sin always breeds death. You know what's beautiful about bringing sin to the light? You don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to put on a facade anymore. You don't have to worry that somebody is going to somehow find out. All that fear and anxiety that you're constantly living in, wondering if someone will find out the real you—all of that is gone when you drag that sin into the light. When you take it to the foot of the cross and you tell some trusted friends, all that's gone, and you're set free. And I got to tell you, there's nothing like being free. And so, if that's you today, if you need to talk with someone, please find me or find Matt or uh, maybe your small group leader or a trusted friend. We'd we'd love to talk with you about the freedom that you can find. Sin may offer life, but it only brings death. Jesus is the only one who offers life and can actually actually deliver on that promise. And it begins, that life begins by bringing him your sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have made a way. Each one of us in here started out in the same place. We were enslaved, and we couldn't do a single thing to change that. We tried. We tried to make ourselves better. We tried to clean ourselves up, but all our attempts failed. We don't have the power. We never will have the power. We were just like the Israelites, enslaved in Egypt. We had no power to deliver ourselves from our slavery to sin you loved us so much and you wanted a relationship, a restored relationship with us. And because of that, you sent Jesus to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay. He died the death that we should have died. He made it all possible so that we could be forgiven. He made a way for us. God, we thank you so much for that. I pray that you'd help us to be people who walk in the light, be people who walk in the freedom that Jesus has bought for us, that we wouldn't run back to our old lives of slavery thinking that somehow it's going to provide something for us this time when it has always proved to be an oppressor. It has always proved to be something that brings death. Help us to be people who remember that life with you is so much better. You're the only one who offers life and can actually deliver. Thank you for Jesus. It's his name that we pray. Amen.